0: Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm Jill wine and this week we'll be explaining how the Department of Justice is once again flexing its civil rights enforcement muscles. We'll also look into the case of the Snapchat cheerleader and give you the dirty on Rudy Giuliani's legal woes. And as always, we'll be answering some of your questions at the end of the show. Before we get to all those subjects, what do you all think about having seen two women sitting behind the president when he addressed both houses of Congress.
1: I thought that that was great. It was really something, you know, um, it, it shows you progress. It's too long in coming. But that women are finally occupying the top positions, if not the top position, but many of the top positions in government. Um, and just a, a couple of things. One, uh, particularly for Vice President Harris, um, I saw on Twitter a photo, a juxtaposition of a photo taken of her walking into the House chamber. I believe it was taken by uh, I believe it was taken by Frank Thorpe at NBC of her striding in. And it was juxtaposed uh, the Norman Rockwell painting of Ruby Bridges as she was walking into the desegregated school. And it just shows uh, a trajectory of how far women of color have come in particular. And I found that was very moving. And I thought about it in other times in history. You know, it's beyond politics. It shouldn't be Partisan. I remember uh, when Condoleezza Rice became uh, Secretary of State, and I agreed very little on policy reasons with uh, her positions. But at the same time, when she when she reached that position and she was the chief diplomat for the United States to the rest of the world, there was such a sense of pride in me that that position was held by a black woman, a black woman who grew up poor in the South and who was, whether I agreed with her or not, by all means, uh, intelligent, hardworking, concert pianist, fluent in Russian, just what an extraordinary story. And now she is the face of America to the rest of the world. That moment gave me chills, even though I didn't agree with anything that she said. And so I think that this is a moment that everybody, regardless of your politics, should be able to embrace and, and, and celebrate. And what about what President Biden said in acknowledging this?
0: Did anybody else get chills listening to it?
2: You know, I really did. It was wonderful the way he stopped and took advantage of the moment um, to point out what was happening. And then a couple minutes into his speech, he was talking about policy goals. And he said, I'm asking the vice president to lead this effort because I know it will get done. And I thought that was a really nice moment too, this acknowledgement that there's so much competence and so much leadership in Kamala Harris. And then seeing her with Nancy Pelosi, what it meant to me, and I hope my daughter had this takeaway too. I've got a a daughter who's a college senior. I hope it means she can do whatever she wants to do. As Nancy Pelosi says, the limit is beyond the sky, right? The sky is no longer the limit. Women are full partners in governance, but in everything else
3: in our society. Yeah, I I thought the whole thing gave me chills, too. In fact, they had me at Madam Speaker uh, you know that I, I actually asked everybody in my household to be quiet for a minute because I so wanted to hear that. And I know we've heard that before when Nancy Pelosi had previously served as Speaker of the House. But you know, the Sergeant at Arms walks in to announce the arrival of the President. You know, Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. I think that is so significant. And to see them both up there um, gave me a lot of pride. I saw an editorial cartoon the next day that had the two of them standing there whispering to each other, um, two down, one to go." You know, so we're <laughs> not quite there yet until the day we. See a woman standing in the president's spot, but I give Joe Biden a lot of credit for having the self-confidence to surround himself with women, people who are, uh, you know, highly competent, and I, I think it is a credit. Not only to them, but to him and Kim. That image of Kamala Harris striding through um, the rotunda of the Capitol that you mentioned um, also gave me such pride. I, I've made it my wallpaper on my my cell phone because I just love that image, and, and it's especially poignant, I think, knowing that just a few months earlier that was the place where we had these white nationalists uh, storming the Capitol, trying to uh, upset our democracy. And to me, it was not only a symbol of women's empowerment, but of democracy prevailing, that this is the certified, duly elected vice president who has retaken ownership and the power of their, and of that place. Um, and then, you know, just that idea of representation and how important it is, I think it's important to our daughters as well as to our sons to, to see women as full partners in democracy and the world. Uh, I can remember when um, one of my sons, was five years old it was during the time that Jennifer Granholm was the governor of Michigan the first woman governor and she was going to speak at the Democratic National Convention and I wanted to watch it and I wanted my kids to watch it so I had gathered them around the TV set and um, they all kind of knew who she was we'd met her uh, she used to be in a USA assist US attorney in our office so they, they knew her a little bit and so they knew it was a big deal to watch her give this uh, very prominent speech and as we were waiting for her to speak there was a prior speaker who was still finishing up and my my five year old son asked now who's that guy and i said oh that's ed rendell he is the governor of pennsylvania and he said with all seriousness you mean boys can be governors too And to me, that was such an eye-opening moment. Of you know, we only know what we see, and so for kids right. to see women standing behind the president, and I hope one day standing as the president, uh, as you say, Jill, it's the the sky's not the limit. Beyond the sky is the limit, and so this representation is really important, I think, for young people. You know, you hear um, it, to be it, you have to see it, and so I thought it was great that we got a chance to see it. Well, this it is was exciting, powerful. Barb.
2: Uh, Barb, I look forward to uh, working on and donating to your presidential campaign down the future, (laughs) so that women can finally get there. Some, some, someone, someday will be that woman. I look forward to voting for her. And I don't think it'll be that
0: far off. Uh, But in the meantime, there are some women at the Department of Justice who are going to be helping the Attorney General Garland in the civil rights area, and I think. Now would be a good time to talk about that. So, Kim, do you want to start us off on that subject?
1: Yes, absolutely. It was a big week for the Department of Justice this week uh, with uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland and the women that you talk about on some civil rights issues that are moving forward. Um, first, hate crime charges were filed against the defendants accused of uh, murdering Ahmad Arbery. In Georgia that horrific video that we saw last year of Ahmad Arbery while he was out jogging uh, and he was ultimately followed and shot by three individuals uh, uh, at during that jog they were already facing murder charges but they are now facing federal charges of hate crimes um, also uh, the attorney general announced that there will be a pattern or practice investigation into practices at the Louisville police department and local government. Uh, that is in part in response to the shooting of Brianna Taylor in her home. Uh, and, and, you know, watching these, and, and as you said, Jill, uh, in, instrumental in these cases are, are the newly installed women at the justice department, uh, including Vanita Gupta, uh, uh, Pam Carlin is in charge of the civil rights enforcement in some of these cases. Of course, we are still waiting for the confirmation of Kristen Clark, who will lead the Civil Rights Division once she is confirmed. Um, but these cases coming the week after we got that verdict in the George Floyd case, we talked a little bit about that, about how that felt good, but it certainly was necessary but insufficient in terms of doing things like rebuilding trust in communities that have seen this sort of violence from police. And to me, to see this movement from the Federal Justice Department, uh, which is such a departure from what was done in the previous administration, and seeing Attorney General Merrick Garland himself uh, come out and talk about the importance for example of these pattern or practice investigations uh, in places like Louisville and praising the ongoing investigations that are that are going on in Minneapolis and, and other police departments that are uh, and other local officials who want this help from the Department of Justice to fix the problems that they have in their policing department um, and how it is important, not just for the communities, but for police themselves, for everyone to feel safe. Really made me feel for the first time in years that the Justice Department understood the importance of this. And Merrick Garland himself talked about trust. And I wrote a column about it this week in the Boston Globe about how that trust is so important to restore. And he seems to know that. I remember in, during his confirmation hearing, he talked about himself, uh, his his parents coming to the United States, being immigrants who were persecuted um, and fleeing that and how the United States welcomed them and, and gave them a, a, a chance at the American dream and how that influenced him and how that's why he wanted to do the work that he is doing. Um, and it seems that he is on the right path to that. It's, the proof is in the pudding. This is still early, and this won't do it on its own. But it's such a change in tone from the top. I was really skeptical when he was nominated. I think we talked about this before. I wasn't sure that he would be the civil rights warrior that I thought, given everything that was happening, was necessary at top of, uh, atop the Justice Department. But I think between... Uh, him, uh, and Vanita Gupta, and the other people who are at the Justice Department, that we are turned in the right direction. And I, I want to talk a little bit more about these cases, Barb, um, the, the charges in uh, the case of Ahmad Arbery, um, where Gregory McMichael, his son Travis McMichael, and Roddy Bryan, were charged with federal hate crime um, charges now they're already facing murder charges in Georgia. Talk a little bit about how what what this federal hate crime is and how federal charges and state charges can be moving forward simultaneously.
3: Yeah, I I was um Really a little surprised and gratified to see these charges get filed because uh, of the fact that there are already state murder charges pending, which bring with it uh, life in prison, even death eligible. So some pretty steep penalties already there. But I think... um, really important to see this Justice Department uh, demonstrating that it is back in business. And so filing these charges against uh, the father and son, Travis and Gregory McMichael and their friend Roddy Bryan uh, with attempted kidnapping, uh, firearms offenses and civil rights offenses. There's a federal civil rights crime that um, makes it a crime to to use force to willfully injure or interfere with anyone because of their race or other uh, protected demographics Um, when they are participating or enjoying Some sort of benefit service program or facility that's administered by a state. So here the indictment alleges that he was simply using a public street when um, they attempted to kidnap him and ultimately shot him to death. And when you think about what was happening there, um, they suspected that he had been involved in some break ins in the neighborhood earlier. Uh, There's no evidence to tie him to that first. But even if in the unlikely event that were true, think about what they're doing here. They're taking the law into their own hands and trolling around looking for a guy. Uh, And, you know, the black guy who shows up, they've got their gun and they try to,
1: um, you know, falsely imprison him and ultimately shoot him. So, uh, I mean, it's worth noting that Gregory was a former police officer. He was not a police officer at the time that this happened. He was a failed police
2: officer. In fact, he had resigned after failing to uh, comply with his firearm certification in prior years. So there's some
3: indication that he had problems while he was a police officer, too. Well, and this, you know, this particular statute does does not uh, require that uh, the perpetrator be a police officer. There are some statutes that do that say when you're using the color of law or authority of your badge, there are certain things that are criminal. This is one that applies to anybody who deprives someone of their civil rights uh, by injuring them while they're using a public a public street. And as you said, Kim, it's a little interesting. How does it work when you've got state and federal charges? So ordinarily, there is something the Justice Department called the petite policy. Uh, and that doesn't mean it's a small policy or diminutive in any way. It comes from a case of petite versus the United States. Um, and the core part of the law is that there is something called the dual sovereignty doctrine, which says that it is not a violation of double jeopardy to be prosecuted for the same conduct in the state and then by the federal government. Um, That because they're separate sovereigns with separate statutes, they could each, in theory, prosecute somebody uh, in the state and in the federal government for the same conduct. But the policy says, you know, ordinarily we shouldn't do that. Ordinarily, we want to make sure that we use scarce resources uh, as efficiently as possible. And we don't want people to feel the burden of defending themselves in multiple jurisdictions for substantially the same uh, conduct. Um, we want to promote co- coordination and cooperation between federal and state. Um, so, unless there is a substantial federal interest that is not vindicated, ordinarily the the default policy is for the federal government to stand down and allow the state to proceed in the interest of comity. That's not comedy with a D, but comity with a T. Um, And so it is common to see the state go first in these cases. And then the federal government might sit back and and say, well, was the person uh, brought to justice? Were they held accountable? Did they get a sentence commensurate with the conduct involved? In some cases though, where there is both a murder, a state offense, and a federal civil rights offense, as there was here. It wasn't just that he was murdered. It was that he was murdered on account of his race. There was, at the time, no hate crimes statute in Georgia. Um, And he was deprived of his civil rights, his rights to peacefully walk and run down a street. And so that is a federal interest that has not yet been vindicated, even if he is convicted in the state. And so, you know, I think the government will be judicious in seeking penalties where there's already a state charge. But that is uh, how the policy works. And it's interesting. You see this, Kim, from time to time. For example, Dylan Roof was someone who was prosecuted both in the federal government and in the state. And at the time, one of the statements by, I I think it was the state charges, Uh, The person who filed the state charge in the case said, we want to make sure we have a backstop in case these penalties ever go away by an appellate court, you know, sort of a belt and suspenders approach. This is such a serious crime that we want to make sure there isn't some change in the law down the road that causes the release of Dylan Roof because we believe him to be such an egregious offender. And interestingly enough, there has been reporting, I don't know if this has been confirmed yet, that the federal government is looking into the Derek Chauvin case and maybe considering federal charges there. They have been investigating, uh, but um, I don't know whether they'll wait to see what the sentence is in that case. Or, you know, again, there is a separate federal interest that has not yet been vindicated, which is the deprivation of civil rights of George Floyd in addition to the state court murder charges. So we'll have to wait and see what happens there.
1: Yeah. And you know, you're talking about that belt and suspenders approach and going back to what uh, Attorney General Garland said about trust. Uh, in this case, uh, in the, the murder of Amard Arbery, the only reason that the public knew about it, that the people who uh, were involved in this were free, the police knew who they were, they were aware. And there was a video. And the police were, were aware of the video. And no charges were brought these people were still walking free and it wasn't until one of their attorneys uh released the video publicly that the state stepped in uh and and criminal charges were pursued so you can understand why a lot of folks watching this who may not be lawyers may be glad that there are multiple levels of government looking into this and, and bringing charges um So, Joyce, I want to move on to these pattern or practice investigations and consent decrees. These are things that went away in the uh, Trump administration under uh, an attorney general from your home state. But now they're coming back. Talk a little bit about why that's important. Well, it matters a whole lot. Like so many of the
2: changes that Jeff Sessions made at the Justice Department, it's good to see this one reversed and see the restoration of the process of using pattern and practice investigations. But let me say what what pattern and practice investigations aren't. These aren't routine investigations that are conducted in large numbers across the country every year. They're very intensive investigations. And I think we've talked a little bit about the Ferguson investigation in the past, which was an intensive, all hands on deck investigation into policing in Ferguson. And the reason is that that's what the pattern and practice process envisions. You're looking for systemic abuses. So DOJ isn't quick to open these investigations. I think that there may have been 14 in total during the Obama administration. And that's because of the resource drain and the limited resources. In fact, one of the things that the George Floyd Act would do if the Senate will get off the stick and pass it is it would add additional resources so that more of these investigations could be conducted by using them. And Merrick Garland has already opened two of them, um, one in Minnesota, which I think is the one that's the furthest along. And this will be a look at policing, not just from the police's point of view, but from the community's point of view, to determine whether or not there are systemic abuses that can be addressed with a consent decree, that's a voluntary agreement between the police department and DOJ, which then becomes enforceable by a federal judge so that if the city's commitment lags down the road, you can still have a guarantee that, that policing that is unconstitutional will be reformed. I think it's Interesting, though, to note, Kim, we had talked a little bit about the shooting of Makia Bryant in Columbus and the fact that the city there has asked DOJ to intervene. The request, it didn't come from the police department. It came from the mayor. And he said something pretty interesting. I wrote it down. I wanted to read it. He said, the city needs additional help because of, quote, fierce opposition to reform within the agency. And that's the tension here. Police departments don't always see a need to reform. I mean, just like what you guys were talking about in in Georgia, where the police department was aware of the situation that surrounded the death of Mr. Arbery, and they still failed to bring prompt charges until it became a public issue. So this will be the problem. DOJ has limited resources. They can't do pattern and practice every place. Local elected officials may see the need for reform in some cities where DOJ doesn't investigate. And like all politics, this will have to be local. Ultimately, DOJ will have to get resources to police departments where there aren't pattern and practice investigations to encourage local action to bring about change. And Kim, I'd like to
0: add something to what Joyce is saying because Chicago was a victim of Jeff Sessions dropping Uh, pattern and practice and consent decrees and not enforcing them. And I'm hoping that we'll get back on track here in Chicago. But another thing that she said earlier um, was about one of the defendants being a police officer and being a wayward police officer who had lost his certification because he was totally noncompliant with training rules and regulations. And if we can go back to the policing reforms that are pending there would be a national registry. So he couldn't then go somewhere else and get hired. And that's a really important part that we keep forgetting about. I think transparency uh, through consent decrees and the other advantages for consent decrees, yes, it only deliberately applies to the particular venue where it was investigated, but it sets a, a pattern of better behavior. It sets a rule. It sets a model. And other jurisdictions can voluntarily make the changes that are recommended and mandated for Chicago or Minneapolis or anywhere else. And we should pay attention to that because it has a multiplying effect. It's not just that you can only afford to do 14 in eight years. You have a much broader impact from those 14.
1: Well, that's absolutely true. And Jill, I want to stick with you because one thing that struck me uh, about Merrick Garland when he was talking about these investigations and consent decrees is that he kept reinforcing that this doesn't just keep the community safe. This helps protect police officers. Um, Talk a little bit about how that is in that messaging, the importance of that messaging right now. Uh, The messaging is very important. Um, When you're in an environment
0: where defund the police developed a life of its own and uh, this says police matter and we need to protect the police as much as anybody else and the rules that come up from consent decrees give credibility um, i can liken it to something i did when i was general counsel of the army i oversaw some intelligence operations and i said i don't care if you're investigating americans overseas I want the constitution to apply overseas. And they of course resisted at first. But by the time uh, my term was up, the intelligence community said, you really did a lot to give us credibility. You made us comply with rules and regulations and constitutionality. And the same is true here. Consent decrees can give uh, credibility to the police and make them a partner with the community make the community accept them and value them. And that will ultimately protect them and also help them to solve crimes. People in Chicago, we have so many murders, but people will not cooperate with them. But now maybe they will.
3: And can I just uh, add one quick thing? We, we had a, a consent judgment in Detroit with the Detroit Police Department. Um, and I, I saw that um, there were some early chiefs who did not embrace it. And um, the current chief, James Craig, did embrace it and reached full compliance. And it was uh, he saw it, I think, accurately for what it was. It was not an us versus them, it was an opportunity. And he really valued it and he used that opportunity to transform the police department. So, you know, it's still not a perfect department, but it's so much better than it was because they got expert advice on how to implement better policy training, programs, systems, resources. And so it is today a much stronger police department than it was before. So barb
0: could you lead us in a discussion of snapchat cheerleader it's a great topic yeah it's
3: a little topic i like to call give me an f um (laughs) the, the snapchatting cheerleader um there was a case before the supreme court they heard oral argument on wednesday involving the first amendment rights of a student she was a 14 year old sophomore who communicated on social media she was off school campus and outside of school hours Uh, A student named uh, Brandy Levy, and she had been cut from her Pennsylvania high school varsity cheerleading team back in 2017. And she was disappointed, as, you know, kids are. And she uh, made the junior varsity instead of the varsity. And so over the weekend, she's at a convenience store with some friends, and uh, they post a a picture on Snapchat, uh, the social media app, um, with the words, and spelled out in full profanity, uh, F school, F softball. She plays on a, a, a non-school softball team. Uh, F cheer, F everything. And the Snapchat also included a photo of her and her friend with their middle fingers extended. So she posts it, which makes it visible for her friends on Snapchat, about 250 young people. And there's one important aspect of Snapchat for those who don't use it, I think, is that the message and the image are designed to disappear after 24 hours. So they they don't last. So she didn't intend for this to be out there forever. But as luck would have it, one of her so-called friends took a screenshot and it ultimately got back to the cheerleading coach who suspended the student from the cheerleading team for a year for violating team rules and school rules. Uh, and they have filed a lawsuit against the school district. And the question is whether the First Amendment permits school administrators to regulate the speech of students when they're off campus. And you know, it raises all kinds of really interesting issues because of the technology. Um, so Jill, let me, let me start with you and ask, you know, what are the arguments on each side of, of this case?
0: The First Amendment is so complex, but this goes back to a case from my era, uh, which is a 1965 case called Tinker, where students wore armbands to school in protest of the Vietnam War. And again, the, the school punished them by saying you can't do that and expelling them. And it went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, unless you disrupt the school day, it is your right to have free speech. And so the question here is, now that we have social media, does can you disrupt a school when you're not in school? It's one thing to wear an armband to school, but if you're wearing an armband on the street, clearly no one would think that's disrupting school. So is posting something on Snapchat disruptive of the school? And I think the argument is gonna be that it was disruptive, although the Supreme Court could decide this on two grounds. One is that free speech rules and you cannot uh, punish for off-campus comments or that this off-campus comment did not disrupt the school. And so it doesn't get to the actual First Amendment issue. So I think those are where the arguments are gonna, uh, you know, do you wanna win on the First Amendment or you just wanna make sure that you win Um, She's probably already out of high school by now. um, And she did finally make uh, she made the junior varsity team. um, And and she was mad about not making the varsity team for her softball as well. Um, So I think those are the arguments that Mm -hmm. you're going to see is that it's not harmful to the school and that there is no First Amendment right. I think there is a First Amendment right and that we need to be teaching our students to be. Uh, smart about what they say. But I wanted to add one thing, which is students need to be very careful because employers are going to be watching what they post on social media. And people will not get jobs if they're posting pictures of them drunken uh, at a wild party or saying things that are socially and politically unacceptable. So you should be careful about what you say and be willing to take the consequences because that's not a First Amendment right to get hired by somebody. And so it could affect your life. Oh, F that, Jill.
3: Um, (laughs) Kim, you you covered the oral argument in this case for the Boston Globe. So you got a chance to observe the justices what did they give any indications you know sometimes they express some skepticism with the argument of one side
1: or the other did you
3: did they seem persuaded by the schools or by um uh brandy about their arguments
1: You know, well, first of all, I didn't really observe it because the arguments are being conducted telephonically right now in this pandemic. So I usually like to uh, be in the court and watch these, but you can't. Um, It's also, so they go in order of each justice gets to ask a bunch of questions. It's also why this argument, which was supposed to be an hour, went on for two, um, which annoyed me a little bit because, you know, Chief Justice is not always a great timekeeper. Um, But yeah, so like many constitutional issues right during oral arguments you could really see how uncomfortable all of the justices were at the prospect of drawing a hard line when it came to where this student's first amendment protections uh began and ended and and where not just you know how far outside of the schoolhouse doors. But in cyberspace, since this was being done on the internet, we know that none of our constitutional rules apply to the internet, they have not caught up to the internet, they may never catch up to the internet. And to ask the US Supreme Court to draw the line of and where in the internet these First Amendment protections uh, go is something they are loath to do. And they really, especially uh, Justice Breyer particularly, was like, I don't want to come up with this test, essentially. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, I, But it's really, yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, it's, it's really this issue. So, um, as you said, generally speaking, if things, the, the issues are, okay, well, on the one hand, this was done outside of school, but it affected school people. I'm not sure that's a strong argument. I personally think, you know, there's an adage that bad facts make bad laws. I don't think that this is a great set of facts for a case to really examine the extent of First Amendment protections. There are so many things at issue. First of all, it's not involving school like a math class. It's an extracurricular activity. I'm a former cheerleader. Look, I'm I'm full disclosure. I should have said that mm-hmm. in the beginning. I was a cheerleader in high school. I understand the. Not making the team would have been devastating. I did make varsity, but if I did, it would have been devastating. We need pictures. I will share. I will share. The girl you squeezed out is still. You know, I will put a picture in the show notes. Excellent. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Prove that I was. I did make varsity. There's some girl who got cut. It would have been devastating. I probably would have sworn, but it was before the. It was before Snapchat, so I would have been okay. Also, this issue of, well, what was the harm done by this rant? They may not have liked it. What did she hurt the feelings of the coach and some of the administrators in the school? Is that enough to really punish her in a way for making this, you know, making this comment outside of school? I don't think these are great facts, but there is clearly an issue here, despite the fact that this case doesn't have great facts, and I think that it's a winner uh, for the student. But at some point, people will have to grapple with where these rules go out in cyberspace, particularly on the issue of cyberbullying. Uh, schools and administrations need the ability to really have clear rules when it comes to what people can say, what students can and cannot say on the Internet when directed, particularly at other students, when it is a threat of harm, when it is something that is truly, in the words of Tinker, disruptive, even if it's coming from through the internet from one's own home, but that affects the school. I'm not sure that is this case, but that is where the lines are being drawn. You heard people like Justice Kagan saying, okay, well, where's the rule? What if a student outside the school on the internet was making lists about the attractiveness of of girls in the school you know, it might be lewd, but is that something that enjoys constitutional protection? Those are the lines that the Supreme Court doesn't like to draw. So what I think is going to happen is they're going to say, you know what, we addressed this in Tinker, the case that Jill talked about. We're going to remand this down to the lower court because we don't think they did a, a strong enough determination of whether it met that Tinker standard. Wash our hands of it. We don't want to do this. I bet that that's what happened. But I'm wondering why they took this case up in the first place, because I think the facts weren't great at all.
3: Yeah, I think you make a very good point about the bad facts make bad laws because you know Supre- the Supreme Court doesn't write the facts, although they do choose cases based on the facts when they think it tees up the question. Well, I think the difference and the reason they probably took it on is because it brings in this element of the internet that is absent in Tinker. Um, and I also think it is a very serious problem that schools are dealing with cyberbullying, uh, where outside of school, uh, students are talking to each other on Snapchat or Instagram or whatever it is, and making life a living hell for students who are in school. And so... Um, although there is a little bit of a Big Brother feel when the school starts uh, enforcing rules outside of the school itself, um, there is the the school culture, I think, can be affected by things that happen outside because um, internet communications can occur wherever the students are, including uh, before and after school. And so I think that's part of it that makes it so interesting. Um, Joyce, let me ask you about... um, the thought about where we do this line drawing on the First Amendment and, and, you know, the questions that some of the justices were asking about, you know, would it matter if the message had been one like, you know, F the trans students or F the black students uh, and it happened on a weekend at a convenience store. So they're not in school. So how, do, how should people go about thinking about w- where to draw that line for school administrators? It's so tricky. You know, it's a really
2: important question, and since we're disclosing bias today, I'll disclose my bias. I started life uh, doing a lot of First Amendment work. I was a lawyer in a big firm in D.C., and we defended a lot of defamation cases with constitutional implications, so I have a strong bias in favor of the First Amendment and drawing legal rules that protect our right to free speech, even when it's speech that some people don't like which is a really interesting point in this case. You know, I wonder if we would be here if it had been a, a young man who had used this kind of language, or we just here because it was a woman who used this kind of language. But I'll, I'll set that aside. Um, You know, the concern that we should have in this case, Kim is probably right about the outcome here. This is a great case for the Supreme Court to duck and send it back to the lower court to apply tinker and determine whether or not the speech was truly disruptive. And that sets up a little bit of a problem here that we've discussed before. This notion that the law is not really fully up to the task of dealing with the problems that arise because of the Internet. It's almost as though we need a a revamping of our our rules, of our laws, in a lot of areas that takes into account what's different about the Internet and why pre-existing case law doesn't apply. The real problem here is, is this notion that if schools can reach speech like this and if the school can call this speech disruptive, then we live in an area where school administrations can decide to demonize certain kinds of speech. There's nothing, for instance, that would keep them from demonizing progressive political speech, speech supporting the Black Lives Matter movements. And we've seen some precedent for that in society, right? I mean, we know that the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer in D.C. were met with a pretty strong police response, while the January 6th insurrectionists were in some ways treated very differently. There's nothing that says that we couldn't see that same sort of a dichotomy with speech, where some speech wouldn't be threatening to school officials, other speech would be And that notion of disruption would be in the eye of the beholder. And that's why it's really important that we get new legal rules that give us more guidance than what we have now. You know, Justice Thomas actually is of the view that students have no free speech rights. And he has a concurrence in a case um, called Morse, where the the, uh, discussion there was about whether students who advocated for the use of illegal drugs, whether that was protected free speech, And his view was that the court shouldn't decide whether or not this speech was okay. They should just say, students have no free speech rights, and so we can do whatever we want in this sort of a situation. I I don't think that there are four justices yet who would join him in that ruling, but it's important to think about First Amendment rights in the schoolyard and and to take it seriously and not to think that school administrations will always treat schools fairly. So I apologize for the rant. I'll just say that one thing I think that uh, Justice Thomas got right when he wrote in Morse was this notion that we, we right now have a legal standard where students have a right to free speech, but there are exceptions. And the only way we know what the exceptions are is when they get litigated. That kind of uncertainty isn't helpful for anyone. So I think it would be a great opportunity for the court to set standards for internet and speech in the context of schools, to protect students from bullying and from other true disruption, but to create a wide band of permissible speech. I'm just not sure this is the case that gets us there.
3: Yeah. And, you know, Joyce, you raise an interesting question or an interesting issue about how um, the court tries to kind of retrofit these concepts like the one Jill described in Tinker with the armbands in the 1960s into this digital world. And it doesn't always fit. You know, they try to use these little analogies and analogies are great in the law when you take something you know, simple to help people understand something complicated. But you you often hear these things like, um, you know, think of a computer file, like a a file drawer, and you're opening the drawer, and you're putting the paper inside. Um, It isn't exactly like that. And the same thing with these, you know, ability to communicate uh, through the Internet, a very different phenomenon than when people are talking uh, inside the school. And so it's also like, you know, there was the Carpenter case that talked about the third-party doctrine when it came to cell-site, location information. Um, It it really kind of throws the doctrine out the window because of the ability to monitor somebody 24-7. It it really, the doctrine just didn't fit. And so I think rather than trying to apply everything and retrofit it to uh, the the concepts that we've considered in the past, I think sometimes we need to reconsider how things work in the virtual world. Well, we'll keep an eye on that case. Uh, Sometime this term we'll look for a written opinion on that and I'll I'll be eager to read that one.
1: Hey, Kim, have you tried Headspace? You know, Jill, one thing that I have learned in this pandemic is how important mindfulness and meditation are just for your own personal health, especially to deal with anxiety and stress uh, and things outside of our control. And I have really found Headspace to be helpful in that. What do you think, Jill? It is amazing, and I'm using it like three times a day now
0: because they have a wake up get yourself invigorated and then sort of a short break during the day to relax a little which is very helpful and really does energize me to get back to work and then it's very helpful in going to sleep i got some earbuds that i can use so that i don't disturb anyone you know my husband at the same time and they talk you through basically relaxation and it really works
1: yeah, I have insomnia as well, and it's a wonderful tool to have. You know, Headspace makes it easy to build a life changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you, anytime, anywhere, to give you a daily dose of guided mindfulness meditation in an easy to use app. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research.
0: So, whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, have trouble falling asleep, wild kids, Headspace has a meditation for you. Their approach can reduce stress,
1: improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Headspace's benefits are backed by 25 published studies, 600,000 five-star reviews, wow, and over 60 million downloads. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com sisters. And I
0: want us to have 600,000 five-star reviews, too. <laughs> but that's headspace.com sisters for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation.
2: Earlier this week, DOJ executed search warrants at Rudy Giuliani's home and his office, seizing multiple devices, as well as the laptop of his assistant, who also received a grand jury subpoena. This is going to get interesting fast. A lawyer associated with Giuliani and Trump, Victoria Tonesing's house, was also searched. So Tonesing was described as just a witness, but Giuliani wasn't that lucky. It turns out that the execution of these search warrants has confirmed what I think we've all known for a while, which is that he's the subject, maybe the target, but certainly the subject of a federal investigation. There's a lot of reporting that says that the investigation centers on his Ukrainian connection and the work he did in Ukraine trying to get the government there to announce an investigation into Joe Biden's son Hunter And maybe that was because former President Trump believed that that would help him win re-election. There's a lot of murkiness here about the full contours of the investigation into Giuliani, but the search warrants are, are pretty serious. So Giuliani tweeted last night, he said these words, the DOJ in late 2019 covertly obtained access to my iCloud and never notified me. They invaded the attorney-client relationship as we were defending against the phony impeachment. These prosecutors violated the law, not me. If, again, nothing is done, you could be next. <laughs> so, Barb, is any of this true? Did DOJ covertly access Giuliani's account? And if so, why would they need to, uh, to seize his electronic
3: devices if they'd already taken a look at his iCloud, as he puts it? Yeah, so this language is so interesting. It reminds me a lot of the same language that William Barr would use, you know, covert, secret, spying, to suggest that there is something sinister afoot. And in fact, the FBI and the Justice Department every day execute search warrants based on a finding by a judge of probable cause you can't get these things unless a judge makes a finding based on a detailed factual affidavit that supports a conclusion that they contain evidence of a crime Uh, it's either evidence or instrumentalities or fruits of a crime so uh, it is quite possible that in late 2019 doj obtained access to his icloud account that would only be done with a search warrant based on uh, issued by a judge based on a finding of probable cause. And never notified me is quite possible. You can get a delayed notification upon a showing to a judge that to, to notify the, the subject would undermine the integrity of the investigation, right? So if you tell somebody, by the way, I'm investigating you, it could uh, alter ca- cause them to alter their behavior or destroy other evidence. And then your other question, if they have his iCloud account and can see everything that's on it, Why would they need his phone and his computer? And the answer, I think, is encryption. Uh, You know, there was a time uh, just a few years ago when you could use a warrant to obtain everybody's messages. And oftentimes you did go to the source, to the server, Uh, to the provider, because there you could get not only the messages that were out there, but also those that a person had deleted would still be served on on the server. So deleted emails, deleted texts, and everything would be be there. But now that people are using encrypted applications, you can't get them from the service provider anymore. You need to actually get the physical phones uh, or laptops or devices to see what people are sending via Signal or WhatsApp or any of those other kinds of things. And so that would be the reason that, Uh, in this search warrant that was just executed this week, they would need to have obtained those additional things. And so, you know, could this happen to anybody? Well, only if there's probable cause to believe that you too have committed a crime.
2: It's really interesting that Giuliani doesn't seem to realize that if that happened in 2019, it would have been on Bill Barr's watch, right? Somebody in Bill Barr's DOJ (laughs) would have signed off on that order. So some witch hunt. Barb, let me ask you this question, because this really troubles me. I keep seeing the searches at Rudy Giuliani's house and at his office, and in other cases we see this, they're referred to as raids. Is characterizing this as a raid really accurate? Yeah, no, that's a, that's another great, thank you for that softball trace. That's another one. I know, but it, it's something <laughs> yeah. that just rankles me Same. every time
3: I see it. Yeah, you know, to my ear, it makes me cringe every time I hear it. It's just, it's right up there with, you know, spying and secret and covert and all these words. Um, it is a search warrant. It is an authorized action Uh, that the law permits. Congress has enacted this ability And judges must sign off on it before the the Justice Department or whatever law enforcement agency executes it. So you have actually involvement of all three branches of government with a lot of safeguards in place. So the word raid, I think we were talking about this with Kim, is in part, it's a short word that headline writers like, right? Because you can squeeze it into a headline. But I also think it's a bit of a loaded phrase that suggests government overreach. You know, the vision of the jackbooted thugs with the battering ram barging down your door. Um, And in fact, what usually happens is that these are done during daylight hours. That is the presumption. There is a knock and announce provision that says you have to knock and say, we are here to execute a search warrant. Um, A copy of it is given to the owner or the person at the premises. And then uh, the law enforcement Officer, it usually is a large number, will come in and they are permitted to search anywhere where the items they are authorized to seek may be located. So it could be computers, it could be phones, it could be drawers. Um, They will look in all of those places. But the idea that, you know, this is some covert raid, uh, I think, is trying to suggest government overreach that just isn't present.
1: And I just want to come in, you know, to talk about journalism a little bit. And this is a good lesson for people in consumption of journalism. As somebody who wrote for a tabloid newspaper where we had like, you know, 300 words to describe a story, that's where you get words like RAID because RAID takes up a lot less space than federally executed search warrant. Um, also in radio, the same thing. To say RAID takes a fraction of a second and saying uh, execution of a search warrant takes like a second and a half. And it... it, it These are journalistic tools, but you have to understand the meaning behind them. But I understand your frustration. I think it's so important to keep in mind
0: that words matter. They do. And it's the same thing. To call this a raid is the same as calling the investigation a witch hunt. It isn't. and we It it
1: gets quite to that, but I I take your point. It's
0: deliberately sometimes intended, but it may be just for journalistic conciseness. But I think words do matter, and it's important. I'm, I'm glad that... Joyce, you know, brought that up so that we could make it clear to the audience that this is nothing that was improper or unauthorized or uh, illegal or covert. It was done pursuant to law. And that's important to keep in mind.
2: You know, something that's not always clear is that federal judges are not rubber stamps on search warrants, right? It's not like you, you take your agent and your, your affidavit over to the judge and the judge says, oh, sure, let me, let me go ahead and sign. Judges read the search warrants. They often ask prosecutors questions about whether uh, the probable cause is complete. I have seen judges reject search warrants Mm -hmm. and make you go back and do more work before they will sign off on them. There is nothing here that's automatic. And I think sometimes that gets lost for people who haven't been, you know, at a magistrate judge's house at midnight trying to get an emergency search warrant in a case where something comes up that impacts a victim's safety. And the judge is saying, I just don't think your probable cause here is complete. It is a really serious effort that prosecutors make to get this right, and federal judges are are the gatekeepers. So, that said, so, so prosecutors and investigators get their search warrants here. They go to Giuliani's house and to his office. But, Jill, you had pointed out to me when we were talking earlier this week, it's not like Giuliani didn't know he was under investigation, that something like this would happen at some point in time. So do you think that there was anything there for investigators to find in the searches? Why didn't Giuliani just delete everything? Well, or throw it into the ocean.
0: Um, and, and I actually did some research today and talked to a forensic An analyst of computer data uh, from a company called TeamWorks in Chicago. And she confirms that you need the device to break codes, that it is possible to unencrypt something a lot easier than it would be from the cloud. She also pointed out that no matter how good the wipeout is, and, and I think what you're talking about is that Giuliani knew this was coming. And so he's not, well, I don't know if he's smart enough, but... I mean, we we have to
2: say, right, Giuliani is not exactly known for his tech savvy. Isn't he like the master of the butt dial? Yes, uh, there are many in that category,
0: though. (laughs) Um, But yes, he certainly is not known as computer savvy or phone savvy even. Um, But I think what's what's important is that even if he tried to delete these, uh, forensic people can get back threads of it. Some of it is designed to show that not only eliminate the underlying data, but to show no erasure. And so it's hard, but I was assured that they can do that. The other thing that my friend pointed out to me was that it's equally possible that he used the time available to plant evidence favorable to him. Mm. That it isn't just that he could have eliminated all the evidence that they thought they would get but that he would actually make it look harmless by having put stuff on there. So I thought that was quite interesting. And he also may have acted much like Richard Nixon did, was I'll never have to give this up, I'm home free. And so he didn't think about doing it. So maybe it is still there. We can can certainly hope, because it would be very disappointing after a high profile search warrant to find that there was nothing there that helped. Um, But I think we should also point out that a search warrant would be the last phase of an investigation. Because once you do that, you've announced you're a subject and there's no more surprise element. So you wouldn't do it early on. This may have been something of, well, let's just make sure we have everything we could possibly have by doing it now. We already have enough evidence for an indictment Or it could be that we need more evidence to indict, and we don't even know whether one of those is true. So it could be that there will be an indictment quickly, or given how many records you would find on a phone, uh, it could be a long way away as they have to dig up and unencrypt information. That takes time.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. You always do as much as you can without letting your subject know that you're investigating for all of the obvious reasons. And then you only go over like this at the point where you've done everything else that you can do. I was always astonished by the number of people, and I hope I'm not giving away state secrets here, but you would search their phone or their computer and they would have a file called passwords. And once you access the file called passwords, you can then get into all of the accounts that you otherwise didn't have access to, right? Because you'd send a subpoena to the provider and they'd say, well, we can't get you into the account without a password, sorry. Suddenly you have that and it can advance um, the evidence that you have. Jill, so you raised these interesting options, deleting evidence or planting evidence that makes you look innocent. Could that be obstruction of justice? What do y'all think? I
0: think both would be obstruction of justice. Um, Of course, it depends on the timing. Did he know, um, you know, we can go back again to, to Watergate, which was when Butterfield testified that there were tapes, there were many people who said, why didn't Nixon burn them right that minute? And if he had, before a subpoena was issued, it would not have been an obstruction. He would have gotten away with it. Once the subpoena was issued, then it's clearly obstruction of justice. So somewhere in that line, you, again, we're talking, going back to the cheerleader, and, and, and actually I wanted to say when you first asked Barbara about Rudy Giuliani's comments, I wanted to say, where is that Snapchat cheerleader when we need her? <laughs> because I would have answered your question using language similar to the Snapchat cheerleader. Um, this but, is so a
2: PG-rated I, podcast, right?
0: <laughs> well, that's why I'm not saying it. I'm just referring to a Supreme Court case that uses that word. Um, I'm not using it, but it would have been very tempting. In the meantime, I forgot what, what I was saying. What, what was your question, Joyce? <laughs> so, could, so could this possibly be obstruction oh, of justice? Right. It's a question of where the line falls. Um, Obviously, if he knew that they were investigating him, but there was no subpoena, maybe he could get away with throwing the phone away and it would be gone forever. And they couldn't have done anything with it. Um, But at some point it becomes obstruction. Certainly planting evidence, I think could be, because you're doing that deliberately with the intent to throw off the investigation. So planting evidence, yes, I can't see a time in that slippery slope that it wouldn't be obstruction, but destroying evidence might be something that might not be prosecutable as obstruction. But
2: even without a subpoena, if you did it contemplating an investigation, I'm not saying it would be charged. I just think that it really raises that possibility and it may be something that investigators are looking for.
3: Well, we know his colleagues, Lev Parnov and uh, uh, Igor Fruman, had been charged in late 2019. And so I think that could be used to demonstrate that Giuliani was on notice, at least as of that time, that he was under investigation.
2: And that's a really interesting case. We'll just have to watch this for the future. But in that case, the charges uh, involve uh, federal campaign finance charges. It seems to be the consensus of pundits that what the feds are searching for here with Rudy or is his failure to uh, register as a foreign agent. And so lots and lots of interesting possibilities here. But Kim, before we leave this topic, Giuliani's son, Andrew, had some real harsh words to say about the search of his father's home and business. Among (laughs) them, he said, if this can happen to the former president's lawyer, this can happen to any American. So is Giuliani entitled to more protection because he's the former president's lawyer?
1: no no <laughs> Are He's you not sure? entitled to more or less protection he is a citizen now quite to the contrary if given the fact that he is a high profile individual being the, uh, the attorney for the president i always like to use that in quotation marks because it just attorney for the president just there's so much involved in that but um given the high profile nature you can be sure that, f- that federal prosecutors and those getting this search warrant crossed every T and dotted every I in the execution, in the uh, procurement of this warrant and the execution of this warrant because they knew that it would be heavily scrutinized. So that only confirms to me that there was certainly a basis um, to to bring this search warrant, but he is a he. If there is a basis for anybody, nobody is above the law. We've heard that before. Um, so no, this isn't some case about any. Suddenly, this means that anybody is able to have federal, uh, you know, federal prosecutors raiding them. <laughs> Use the word raid. <laughs> and um, and may, it,
3: may I add, Joyce, that because yes. he's an attorney, there is actually additional scrutiny.
1: That Correct, because of he, privileges. I was just about to get to go, that. Go ahead, Jen. but um, you know you can. Well, it's it's the fact that certain information that they find, whether it's work product that he did in the course of being the president's attorney, I still put that in quotation marks. I still don't know exactly what this attorney uh, client privilege was, and he seemed to waive it left, right, and sideways in so many ways, so I think it'll be hard for him to assert. But if there is work product that is the result of his work as as Donald Trump or anybody else's uh, attorney, that is protected under law. That cannot be used uh, in a case against him. If there were communications that were a part of the attorney-client privilege, that cannot be used either. They have to go through all of this with a fine-tooth comb when an attorney is involved. So you can count uh, this is not some willy-nilly overextension of this rule. If this was executed in this way, that really shows you that there was uh, sufficient uh, smoke there to to support the execution of this warrant.
3: Yeah, and I would just add that the DOJ um, approval process is very stringent when it comes to searching an attorney's office for all the reasons you just described, Kim, the uh, really sacrosanct privilege uh, of attorney-client communications. And so because of that, uh unlike an ordinary search where an assistant u.s attorney can just decide you know that they're going to go to a judge and seek uh approval for a warrant um they have to get the approval of either their their component head either the u.s attorney or the assistant attorney general for their own component and then they have to go up to a higher level the office of enforcement operations which is part of the criminal division and make out the case why they need to search this lawyer's office and in addition to showing uh, that there's probable cause. You also have to show necessity that we have looked for other, uh, avenues of investigation and we can't get what we need without executing this search warrant. And, uh, through a December memo that was, uh, enacted in the last administration, it also requires the filing of an urgent report to the deputy attorney general so that there's an opportunity to put the brakes on if they think that's appropriate. So an awful lot of scrutiny went into this. And so, um, I would say that not only does this mean that, um, you know, he's being held to the standard of of anyone else, I think he is being um, given additional protections of anyone else because he is an attorney. uh, That before this step has been taken, it has been given a lot of careful review by people at the highest levels of the Department of Justice. Absolutely.
2: Well, I bet we'll be discussing Rudy Giuliani in the weeks ahead. I don't think we've heard the last of this.
3: Joyce, have you tried that Magic Spoon cereal yet?
2: I was excited to learn about Magic Spoon cereal because it doesn't have sugar in it. So that's really helpful to me in getting my eating habits back on track as we all start to
3: slowly come out of the pandemic. Yeah, same here. I've been uh, conscious of the pandemic uh, five or 10 or 15, as the case may be. So um, sugar-free cereal is absolutely something that's high on on my list. And and as you said, Magic Spoon has actually zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving, and only 140 calories a serving. So it's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. And we can announce
2: the launch of a delicious new flavor, birthday cake. Birthday cake magic spoon will be available in a special five
3: pack for a limited time early. So get it while you can. Or for a family favorite, you can build your own box that you can customize. And you thought birthday cake sounded good, Joyce. You can add cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, and cinnamon. And don't forget, if you're listening from Canada, magic spoon now ships there as well. This sounds really good. I can't wait to try it. <laughs> Go to magicspoon.com sister to grab the new limited edition birthday cake or a custom bundle of cereal to try it today. Be sure to use our promo code sister at checkout to save $5 off your order. This offer is good anywhere in the United States or Canada, but only when you use our code at checkout. And Magic Spoon is
2: so confident in their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com sister and use the promo code sister to save
0: $5. Let's go to some listener questions. If you have a question for us for next week, please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com, or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week as we will answer as many as we can there. And today we have some very interesting questions. The first one is from Maureen, and I'm going to address this to Joyce and Barbara. How does one get appointed as a U.S. Attorney? And do you have aspirations to return to that office or any other? Barb, sure, I'll start. start.
3: Um, You know, it really varies by the judicial district, but typically the home state senators will recommend candidates to the president, the president will nominate that person. To be the U.S. attorney in each judicial district, there are uh, 94 of them around the country, and then the Senate will confirm those people. Um, but now, you know, how how do you get your name in into consideration? So, in our, in my state, the U.S. senators actually post on their websites a written application, and candidates may apply from that list. They narrow it down to five to ten candidates who then get interviewed by a merit selection committee there are about 25 people on the committee they're all lawyers from throughout the eastern district of Michigan with a variety of practice types, they go through an interview process and then that group recommends to the senators who they should recommend to the President so I went through that process, and um, I loved being the US Attorney, I would uh, put my name back into consideration in a heartbeat, um, except for the fact that I have a husband who is an assistant U.S. attorney, and the last time around he um, took a detail to the Northern District of Ohio um, and became what he referred to as a political prisoner in exile for eight years, and. Um, I I appreciated that support as a teammate, but I could never ask him to do that for me again. So I don't have any plans to go back while he's still there, Um, but uh, I love that job. It was uh, a really incredible opportunity to serve the people of of the Eastern District of Michigan. And Joyce, can you...
2: Give us your experience?
3: So my process
2: was remarkably like Barb's, which is really interesting. Um, in North Alabama, we also had a merits committee that, that met. There were distinguished former judges, former U.S. attorneys and lawyers. And it was a little bit like I would think a Supreme Court argument would be. They were firing questions at me from all directions and uh, both on substance of law, but also on issues of process and and how do you particularly of interest to them was how do you separate politics from prosecution. So we had a really fabulous and interesting exchange, and they were interviewing me, but also some of my friends and, and colleagues at the same time. And so rather than a sense of competition, which could have been an unfortunate um, part of the process there, we were all pretty supportive of each other because We knew that no matter which one of us was chosen, that the office would continue to be in good hands, that we would all continue to be there and work as a team. But because unlike Michigan, Alabama did not have a Democratic senator at that point in time, our nomination was actually made by the only um, elected official who was a Democrat in the state of Alabama at that point in time, a congressman. And that meant I also got to go and sit down with a couple of different groups of Democrats uh, to talk about who I was. And in each of those meetings, I was always very clear to tell people that I appreciated the fabulous food that they fed me. I ate a lot of fried chicken, um, a lot of really, really good Southern cooking. And, And I would tell them, as much as I appreciated the food and the fellowship, that they needed to understand that as a U.S. attorney, that I would commit to deciding cases based solely on on the law and the facts that I wouldn't be there to take calls from folks or do anybody favors. And something that I really liked about the process was that people really understood that and that was actually what they wanted. They didn't want to try to curry favor with the future US Attorney, they wanted you to commit to being fair, they wanted to understand that you were about enforcing the law. Um, And like Barb, I thought it was the best job that you could possibly have as a lawyer. Getting to be the U.S. attorney was something that was remarkably special, remarkably important. And I have not put my name back in for the job because I am really excited about seeing one of the lawyers in the next generation of lawyers, the folks that we spent a lot of time in our office training um, and and bringing those folks along. I'm looking forward to seeing one of them take over the office and, and run the U.S. attorney's office for this administration. Our next question comes from Teriyaki Rocky.
0: And she she or he says, I have a question about the census and gerrymandering. How exactly do these two things affect each other and how did the Trump administration and the pandemic
1: affect the process? Who
0: wants to tackle that? Yeah, one? I can
1: start with that. It absolutely affected it. The pandemic affected everything. It really made it more difficult for people to um for the people who didn't fill out census forms to have usually you have census workers or people contracted by um, the e-commerce department go out, go door to door try to get that information so that you can get the most accurate count certainly in a pandemic uh, with COVID that was harder to do and so that affected the response rate uh, which affects the accuracy of the count but much more importantly the Trump administration really engaged in a concerted effort to um, suppress the participation of immigrants in America and their families um, in an effort to first try to put a question on the census that uh, asked people what their citizenship was which not only would scare people who were in the country illegally who under the Constitution need to be counted too. The, The Constitution provides that the census is a total number of persons living in the country. It just says nothing about citizenship. Um, but an effort to, but if you are in the country illegally, filling out a government form would be scary, particularly if there's a question identifying you as being in the country as illegally. Um, and that was by design. Then you also had an effort to exclude uh, non-citizens from the census count by using data, which would further um, uh, discourage people who were not only people who are in the country illegally, but people in mixed households, legal immigrants, citizens, and people who are are not uh, of legal status often live in the same household. So that would discourage everyone in that household from participating in the census for fear that they would essentially be ratting out their family members and potentially getting them in trouble. This was by design. There are a couple of Supreme Court cases uh, that the Trump administration lost in their efforts to do this. And in the facts, in the records of those cases, it was shown how uh, the administration basically admitted that that was the idea. And the, the reason is uh, congressional lines, which are beginning to be redrawn right now, are based on the census. So the, the fewer people who they think might... Um, it, give greater protection, give greater representation in districts that might go democratic. They see that as a political advantage for Republicans. So they want to suppress those uh, numbers in order to draw districts that are more uh, advantageous to Republicans. Remember right now, the House of Representatives is about as closely divided as you can get. We talk about the Senate, uh, but it only takes a handful of seats in the next uh, election to flip the House. And so this was a a really big issue for Republicans. And that's why you're seeing that this has happened. So it's both political and an effect of the pandemic
2: there was a We're lot not- of litigation
3: go ahead barb i was just going to say one note of hopefulness on this uh count is in michigan where in 2018 a ballot initiative was passed uh in, 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 an initiative called voters not politicians to require an independent commission to draw those lines so in the last sentence the results just came in michigan is going to lose one House seat, which means all those congressional districts are going to have to be redrawn. And we currently have some districts that are really ridiculous. No one would draw if uh, writing from a clean slate That's you know snakes through certain communities to cabin uh, Black voters all within one district. And so by pushing them all there, you can say, well, we're, we're going to give them that district, um, yeah. but then they're going to be disempowered in every other district right. because they won't be Dilution. part of it. And so I am hopeful that this new commission, which is a bipartisan commission, will actually do things like, you know, they're supposed to be uh, contiguous and... Um, honor county lines uh, and natural boundaries and other kinds of things so that you don't you have communities these together salamander-shaped uh, uh, districts. So, right. And so there is some
1: hope. There is. This is particularly important since the Supreme Court declined to say that political gerrymandering was unconstitutional, racial gerrymandering is, but gerrymandering for the purpose of political advantage. The Supreme Court declined to give people a, a way to challenge that in federal court. So it's really important to have those independent commissions. Um, the Boston Globe wrote an editorial advocating for that in Massachusetts and every state um, that they should follow the same approach that Michigan did.
2: There's going to be an. E- this is an enormous. Go ahead. Sorry. There, there's about to be an enormous tidal wave of gerrymandering litigation, a lot of it in state courts. In fact, the same day that the census was released, three lawsuits were filed, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, Louisiana, because based on the census data, new lines have to be drawn. And so it's interesting, Kim, talking about um, litigation in the Supreme Court, which had really declined to rule in favor of the Trump administration on this. The final lawsuit was filed in Alabama, Uh, It was filed by the state of Alabama and by Representative Mo Brooks. You may remember him from the Trump rally on the ellipse the morning of January 6th. But essentially, the concern was that Alabama was going to lose a congressional seat. That actually didn't happen in the census. And and some of the results were were not what people expected. But Brooks and and Alabama sued the Commerce Department and said, you can't count people who aren't in the country uh, legally. And that case wasn't decided before the election. Now it's moot. Much of this litigation is moot. And the the litigation that's going to happen is going to happen on a state-by-state or maybe even a district-by-district basis to determine how these lines get drawn. And make no mistake about it, it's going to be a political battle. Michigan is, is the dream state where a citizen commission is at work. That's not the case in, in big parts of the country. I think we'll be watching this litigation like we've watched the litigation over the outcome of the election in a lot of states after the 2020 count.
0: I think both politically and legally, you are correct. In Illinois, our districts are drawn as snakes, as ewes, as umbrellas. They are ridiculously drawn, and the Better Government Association has spent a lot looking at what a fair map would look like if communities were recognized and drawn. And it's really hard. um, As we discovered, you will end up having your favorite congressman lose their district. And it's so it's, it's a tough job to do, but it does need to be done. And we need to do it through independent means, not through politicians making these judgments. But let's move on to our third and final question. And I hope we have enough time to at least give a little brief answer to this. And that comes from I Bring Receipts. If you could sit down with a SCOTUS justice, living or deceased, and discuss a certain case, who would it be and what case and why? Barb, you want to start?
3: Yeah, um, I would choose Frank Murphy in part because he hails from Michigan. He was a graduate of the University of Michigan Law School and was once an assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Michigan. So um, I'm already I'm already quite fond of him. But um, I would want to talk with him. I find him a fascinating person. He was governor of Michigan, mayor of Detroit. He had a lot of uh, prominent jobs in Michigan. But most importantly, because he was the dissenting justice in the Korematsu opinion, that was the case that upheld the internment of... Uh, Japanese Americans during World War II. Such an interesting case. You know, the idea was that there was a potential danger from Japanese Americans while we were at war with Japan. Um, Meanwhile, uh, no such worry about Germans, right? Of people of German descent who look like look like us, Uh, just the people who who look different. Um, And he was the one who called it out in a dissent and said, "This is racist. What on earth are you talking about? This is an absolute uh, violation of equal protection of the laws." And um, you know, at the time, it was a a dissenting voice, a lone voice. And I think we have come around to see that the the the, the foolishness of this opinion. And in fact, it was overruled in the Trump v. Hawaii case of just a few terms ago, but it it was on the books for a very, very long time. And so um, I have read that one of the things that gave him insight into this issue was that he had once taught night school to immigrants in Detroit when he was a young lawyer. And so uh, he had an appreciation for the plight of the immigrant. But I would love to just talk with Frank Murphy about all of his service. He was someone who said, when asked, like, what what he wanted his legacy to be, it was just that uh, that he worked and made government competent. And I think that is a wonderful legacy for a public servant.
2: Joyce, do you want to give us your favorite? Well, like Barb, I have another case in mind that's an abomination like Korematsu and that's Shelby County versus Holder. I live in Jefferson County, Alabama. Shelby County is just to the south of me. And that's the case uh, from which we have the the Ruling from the Supreme Court that eviscerated the Voting Rights Act, really cut its entire teeth out and led to a situation where we have these new state laws, these new state practices, no longer subject to preclearance by the Justice Department, which means all sorts of voter suppression is going on unchecked. Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote a really powerful dissent in Shelby County. We've talked about it before. She used what I think is the single best image that a judge has ever used to explain why a a judicial ruling is wrong. She said, getting rid of the voting act, uh, the voting rights act is like shutting your umbrella, giving your umbrella away in the middle of a rainstorm because you're not wet yet. Right? This notion, we don't need the Voting Rights Act because it's working so well. And what's striking to me in Shelby County is that Chief Justice Roberts writing for the majority maintained that we no longer lived in an era of voting rights discrimination. Those bad old days in the deep South where people were forced to guess at the number of bubbles on a bar of soap and if they guessed wrong, they couldn't register to vote. Those those days were a thing of the past according to the Chief Justice. I would love to sit down and talk with Justice Ginsburg about whether she ever looked him in the eye and said, really? I mean, really? That's what you're gonna hinge this opinion on? I'd love to know what the exchange was like between the members of the court as they were negotiating the decision in that case. Certainly the Chief Justice would have loved to have had a unanimous majority opinion. He did not get that. But what I'd really like to know is whether anyone ever called BS on what was so clearly uh, uh, an allegation, an assertion in the majority opinion that discrimination in voting was long gone, whether there was ever a frank conversation about what was really happening. And Kim, who would you pick?
1: Those are all great. Uh, for me, I uh, I would love to talk to RBG about so many things, but I'm going to go back a few decades prior and talk about the decision in Loving v. Virginia, uh, which ruled that the law in Virginia banning... Uh, Misingenuation, horrible word, but um, interracial marriage was unconstitutional. It was a unanimous decision in favor of the lovings, an interracial couple. Um, but I would like to talk to. Um, Potter Stewart, who was the author of a concurrence in that case. No disrespect to Chief Justice Earl Warren, who went through uh, and determined that such a claim to deserve the highest level of constitutional scrutiny, that it was a violation of equal protection. Uh, I-, I concur with everything that he said, but Potter Stewart just got to the nub at it with a really short concurrence that said, and I paraphrase greatly you know what, this is essentially a law that says it's legal for one person to do this thing, which is, for example, marry a black woman, and illegal for another person to do this, to marry a black woman. And the only reason is because of their race. You had me right there. That's de facto violation of the 14th Amendment. And it felt I choose to read between the lines to say, we didn't even have to go all the way through this. It should have been. Facially evident to anyone that this is uh, contrary to our constitution. And as a woman, a black woman who was about to marry a white man next month uh, and somebody who I just moved out of Virginia, um, this opinion I've thought about a lot in recent weeks, especially given how recent it was. 1967, that was during my fiance's lifetime. And just to think that during his lifetime, he's about to do something that it was uh, just until then illegal to do it shows that we've come a long way, but we really haven't gotten here fast enough.
0: So for me, first of all, you have all set a very high bar <laughs> of uh, answers. And I, I'm picking a positive case. Um, I mean, I think Joyce and Barb, yours were both horrendous decisions Mine was positive. we should be. <laughs> You, you, no, I, I said Joyce <laughs> and Barb. I'm going with him. I'm going with you on a positive, good decision. And that was Brown versus Board of Education. But the person I want to talk to is actually a man who became a justice, but who was a litigant in the case, and that is Justice Marshall. And um, I, I of course, would like to talk to him because I think he is just an extraordinary figure in our legal history. Um, I have met him at an American Bar Association event, and his remarks were so moving that I literally was at the dais crying, I, I teared up. Um, and in that case, it was separate is not equal, something that again today seems so self-evident, although. Uh, There seems to be a push against that again now. Um, And I would love to be able to talk to him about how he developed his strategy for approaching that in the same way that you'd want to talk to Justice Ginsburg about how she developed her strategy for um, women's rights. And I think he would be a fascinating and wonderful person to talk to about that case and others that are so important in bringing civil rights and liberties to all Americans. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins, Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. Don't forget to send in your questions by email to politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using Hashtag Sisters in Law. And please support this week's sponsors, Headspace and Magic Spoon. You can find their links in the show notes, along with Kim's pictures of being <laughs> Cheerleader. <laughs> to keep up with us every week follow hashtag sisters in law on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you listen and please give us a five-star rating we love to read your comments see you next week with another episode of hashtag sisters in law
1: yes i was a cheerleader in high school i probably should have disclosed that before we had this discussion about but um
2: Are you kidding? You should have disclosed that before we agreed to do the
1: podcast with you. (laughs) Like pom-poms in the whole deck, Kim? There were no pom-poms. We did not have pom-poms. But we competed. And listen, we had to fight to... uh, be a sport, to be recognized as a sport. So I actually have a letter jacket because I did, unlike our poor litigant in the Supreme Court case, I did make varsity. Um, and I, I have a letter jacket, and we got some blowback over that. In my school, it was not popular to be a cheerleader. We kind of got made fun of, uh, but it was a lot of hard work. We cheered for both women and men's sports, which I thought was great. Um, and we competed, it was a year round sport. I broke my tailbone.
2: Mm. I did oh, I was doing a
1: dive roll and I didn't tuck in quite enough and I actually fractured my tailbone and had to go to school with a donut. I mean talk about, you know, embarrassment. I had to go to high school carrying a donut to sit on uh, for a month or so. So yeah, I was committed. But I what hope everyone looks trend? at your pictures because you're totally adorable well, you.
0: in them. <laughs>
2: Hey, what was the best trick that you did, Kim? Did you have like a gymnastics routine or something that
1: was your specialty? I was, I was pretty good at jumping. But, I mean, all the other girls, I was in the one of the last years. They outlawed. They banned um, mounting, like doing pyramids and stuff because of injury. And But I was in one of the last years before they banned that. But because I was a little bigger than the other girls on the team, I served the crucial role at being on the base. So I was at the bottom of the pyramids when we were able to pyramid. Um, but I, uh, I was good at jumping, and I was also the choreographer for dance routines by the end.
3: And when they outlawed mm. the, uh, the tricks and the pyramids, yeah. Kim was quoted as saying, F cheer. <laughs> 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 Which brings us
0: full circle. Yes. <laughs>